Welcome to Data Savvy Educational Leadership, the show where we talk about educational data and all things related to driving a culture of data-informed instruction at your school. Hi, I'm Leah Torres with Education Foundations. And I'm Heather Peltier with Education Foundations. And today we're going to be talking about how the COVID pandemic has changed the way that we look at and use data in schools. So we're going to begin by covering what's different now, and then we'll look more closely at several components, and each of these will be followed by some high-level recommendations for action. This is a two-part series, so today we're going to be covering an overview of what changed, and then we're going to talk specifically about changes that impact your faculty, your teachers, your instructional coaches. We're going to talk about new ways to look at and use data in order to really accommodate some of those changes, some of those shifts that you might be seeing on site in your school or in your district. So first of all, let's talk about why things are different now. So what's changed or what might have changed for your school or your district as a result of the pandemic? So one thing that's changed is the fact that we've had a lot of new teachers join our educational workforce, and they may have come from another certification area where they decided to go into teaching as a second career. They may be really young new teachers who are very inexperienced. We've also seen teachers coming from overseas through various programs. So they've been teachers in other places, and now they're just coming to the United States. And we've had some teachers retire, causing a shortage. We've had teachers, just as teachers are coming in from other jobs, teachers are also leaving to get different jobs as well. So we've just had a real change in teachers since COVID, and that was really a marker for that. There's just been a lot of turnover in the teaching staff, which presents challenges, especially in terms of data use, because that means there's a lot more training and support involved. And we're going to delve into that a little bit more later. But one of the things that we are bracing for is another wave of teacher attrition. There have been several reports released recently that we can really anticipate another wave of teachers retiring or leaving the profession. And all of that turnover does definitely have some impacts on the schools and in terms of how you're looking at and using the data. The news from the pandemic was not all bad because one thing that did change was an increase in funding and the ability for schools to put a lot more one-on-one technology in the hands of the students. The flip side of that is that your teaching staff now needs training and support in terms of how to really effectively move their content into that digital world. So this necessitates a lot of support that may not be present in the schools or may not have been included in the funding for technology. That is a large problem with our new teachers and the fact that there are so many new teachers that need to be trained. Now they just don't need to be trained on pedagogy, but now they need to be trained on technology. And not just training on technology in the sense of how to develop online content, but also training in terms of how to really leverage that technology. So when you're looking at your data and you're looking at areas where students have some gaps in learning and might need some interventions, how can this technology most effectively be leveraged to help plug those gaps? The idea was everybody would have an individualized learning path, and that not hasn't necessarily been the case. One of the things that we have seen is more local involvement in school boards. Parents are very interested in what's going on at the school level and the district level, and a lot of that is because 
they're seeing all over the news about this gap and they're wondering what's happening with their children's learning. How is the gap getting closed? Mm -hmm. How is school taking action to really remedy those effects of the pandemic? Over a period of time, an assumption was is that I was going to send my kids to school and everything was going to be fine, especially if I didn't get a phone call home. And then when everybody went home for COVID, that was a real big change on families and family learning. And, you know, now parents are almost forced to be involved, whether they wanted to or not, in their students learning. And so then the repercussions of that is now they are more involved and now they do have a better understanding. And then one of the repercussions of that is that schools really need to find ways to tell their data story. So right now, states are releasing information about schools. It's publicly available on the website. But sometimes for parent stakeholders, it can be difficult to consume and really understand that data, especially depending on the state and how user-friendly it is. And so because of that, a lot of the information that they're getting is coming from the media. So the state is putting their spin on it. They're choosing which metrics to show. The media is putting their spin on it. They're choosing which metrics to show the public. And so it's really crucial that schools find a way to tell their data story. We've wanted for years to have an audience. We've wanted parents to get more involved and more engaged, and now they are involved, engaged, and interested. And so we need to find ways to reach out to them more and share with them, here's what's going on at our school, here's what our data shows, here's what the student experience actually is like on our campus. That's been the general background, the high-level overview of some of the impacts of COVID and some of the aspects that we're going to consider as we talk about those impacts on your school's data use. In this episode, we're going to be focusing specifically on two aspects. So we're going to be talking about teachers and we're going to be talking about instructional coaches. And if your school is one of the schools that has been impacted by this large amount of teacher turnover, you've got a bunch of teachers who are new to your campus and they may not necessarily be new teachers, but they're new to you. And you have your whole school culture, your set of expectations as a leader in terms of how data is going to be used on campus to drive instruction, what's important to you, what your priorities are. And these teachers, especially depending on their background, may have a really sharp learning curve. There are so many parts of education when dealing with data. You know, you're a brand new teacher and they the school tells you you're going to give a progress monitoring and you're supposed to use that information to guide instruction. If you are not familiar with your state standards, if you are not familiar with your curriculum, if you are not, it's all new. And so if you're not familiar with them, you get this data and what next? Like, how do I, who do I talk to about it? What if my data at the beginning of the year is really low? What does that mean about my students? What do I do next? And so really looking at that and planning, being mindful of what does the data mean? What does it mean for instruction? How do the teachers know what that means for instruction? Who's going to tell them? Who's going to guide them? Especially if you have a whole grade level of new teachers who is going to be responsible for that type of training is really and, going to be key. And one of the things that we talk about and work with in our coaching services, like Data Savvy Coaching, is really showing, okay, what do I do with this data? And showing educational leaders how to walk teachers through that process. Because in many cases, even the leaders, you know, they get reports, they interpret reports, 
but they're not exactly clear how to then become that bridge between our assessments and the data that we've received and how that impacts instruction. And so a lot of the training and coaching that we've been doing with these educational leaders is around bridging that gap for their faculty and showing them even even things as simple as maybe your report puts out data at the skill level or the strand level. How does that actually tie into the standards that they're teaching? Sometimes it has to be made really explicit for teachers in order for them to be able to take that report and turn it into action in the classroom. And it's very time consuming. It can't be a process where if you're planning and you're looking at everybody's data, one person comes up with the lesson plans and then everybody else does them because the everybody's students are different. And so So if one person's doing the planning and their students didn't understand it as well as another person, now the other teacher is just teaching a standard that the kids already understood coming in, especially in ELA because ELA spirals. You have to be specific about what information the students know and what they don't know. And if if one teacher is doing all the planning for ELA that day, for the week at times, because they think that they're really, you know, saving time and they're trying to be efficient, right? (laughs) Trying to be, they mean like they are. If you're new and you're overwhelmed, it's really efficient to one person do ELA and ship it out everywhere. But that can be a place for a barrier or a place where the students don't grow because they already knew it. And now they're just practicing something they know, and we're not filling in the need that they had. If they're really doing this data-driven instruction, then the instructional focus for one class, as you mentioned, might be really different than what needs to happen in another classroom. There's a world of difference between taking a lesson plan that someone has created for you and developing that lesson plan yourself. It's very different. And I know you said, you know, when you were walking through classrooms, you're seeing even it's observable. Like you can, you can actually tell when you walk in the room, whether that teacher was the one who planned that lesson or whether it was a lesson they just picked up and collected from a different teacher. Absolutely. You can normally see it. And a lot of it has to do in how the teacher is presenting it. And the second piece of it is if one teacher uses a certain engagement strategy or pedagogy to teach it. And then the other person that's maybe weaker, or they've never tried this before. And it says, do this to teach that the teacher might not necessarily know what that even means. And besides the instructional strategies and lesson planning, when we think about supporting our new teachers, one of the things we also need to think about is providing teachers and coaches training on using backwards design when they're developing their own progress monitoring assessments. So really thinking about and being planful about what specifically is it about the student's learning that I'm trying to measure here? And what is going to be the most effective way for me to do that? And how do I make sure that what I'm doing when I'm designing my assessments is lining up with the information that I want to gather from these students in terms of their progress toward learning for these specific goals? Because there's a lot of stuff in curriculum that may or may not be part of your assessment. In fact, in the case of backwards design, when we were looking at one of our state's assessment, one of the strands was 30 to 50% of the overall test. So at the local level, we knew that this one strand was 30 to 50%. 
But when they were looking at their assessments and planning their assessments, they didn't backwards design them. So that strand was only about 10% of the test all first semester. So instead of really drilling in and having the kids practice in a spiral sort of way, one of the largest components on that state assessment was tested the least first semester. So one of our high-level recommendations then for working with new teachers or with new coaches is to train them on that process of backwards design. And especially if your state is one that has high stakes accountability measures in place, making sure that you're doing things like looking at your state assessment blueprint, looking at your curriculum map. If you have a curriculum map from your district, a set curriculum you need to be following, and really taking that and using that, starting with the end in mind and moving backwards to make sure that not only all of your instruction, but also all of your assessment is well aligned and representative of what you're seeing in those desired outcomes. When we talk about instructional coaches and we talk about their role and we talk about new coaches, if they don't have a training on looking the backwards design model, looking at their state assessment, looking at their curriculum and aligning really the teaching and the assessments to that end goal, they don't know how to do it. That's not something intuitive, I don't think, to people who have only been in the curriculum world. It's like, I know that I want to teach this passage because I like the reading on this passage and I like the lexile of this passage. And so I'm going to pick these questions that go with this passage that's on this lexile. So it's kind of a very frontwards model. And you're not thinking about the end goal. And so new coaches, there's nothing, there is nothing to say that that is not needed as well. There's a place for both, but there has to be some thought because then it comes back like it did with us, where now we just don't have enough questions loaded into our system to give the teachers review. Right. And they, they can't appropriately progress monitor those now because the curriculum, because there was that disconnect even at the district level between the curriculum team and assessment. And I think that's that's what's so great about our experiences because both you and I have served in curriculum supervisory roles. You've been math, science, I've been ELA and reading. And so we really have that perspective of seeing it from both sides. And in many cases, a lot of the curriculum and content people that we work with, there's this great fear of teaching to the test. So what if I'm teaching to the test? But then there's also this great fear of, well, what if I'm not preparing students for the test? And what if, you know, my students don't do well? And then, you know, maybe that's because of something that I've done instructionally. There really is this balance there because... On the one hand, you don't want to let the state assessment drive everything that's happening in your classroom. But on the other hand, the state assessment is really typically developed with consideration for the importance of the standards. So when those tests are blueprinted, they look at the standards and how the standards are taught. And if you're seeing some really big misalignments in terms of the time allocations, then that often is an indication that there's a gap there. There's a breakdown in understanding. And that's where that's where you and I really can lend value to schools and educational leaders because we do have that understanding. And then just to, um, just to cover one more thing about training new teachers, the other thing that we're seeing is we have more substitute teachers than ever before. And if you're fortunate, these are long-term substitutes. And if you're not fortunate, there's a lot of in and out, and maybe you've got some coaches or other non-load-bearing staff covering some of your classes because maybe you don't even have substitutes that you can bring in. 
So let's, we're going to talk a little bit about some higher level recommendations. These are some things that we have seen that can really work to address some of these challenges that you're having in terms of new teachers or changes to your teaching staff that was caused by COVID and how they're using data and assessment. The first one is chunking that training for new teachers. So making it simple and something that they can do easily that makes sense to them, like small group instruction. A lot of the teachers, especially if they're coming to this through alternate certification, or maybe they even haven't completed alternate certification. First of all, they not only don't have training and instructional strategies, but they also, when they think about classrooms, they think about classrooms whenever they were children, which was often the teacher is that sage on the stage delivering whole group instruction. And that's what they're trying to replicate. So really for these new teachers, just keeping it simple for them. Don't expect them to go from zero to 100 immediately. But think about what are some high impact strategies that they can use that are going to get those best results for their students. And really understanding and having a clear model of what's important to you and your school culture, understanding who's responsible, I think is also key. And what are they responsible for? Do you have one person who's responsible for an ELA and they will help with the instruction of ELA, but somebody else is helping with classroom management, possibly having a very thoughtful and clear understanding of what's important to you. What do you want your school culture to be like? And then, okay, what do I put in for the training for these new teachers? How do I chunk it? What's the order I want? Because if it's haphazard, it's going to be difficult for them to pinpoint what's really important and what does my administrator really want to see in my classroom. And so a thoughtful preparation of it will be key to the success. And the other really big mistake that we've seen made is administrators who are thinking to themselves, all right, I'm going to provide supports for my teachers. And by supports, I mean I'm going to give them time to plan together. I'm going to set them up for PLCs. But they don't have sufficient scaffolding to really make those structures and those supports successful and to turn them into supports. So, for example, if you take a group of new teachers and you say, all right, guys, here you go, plan together, you might end up with something like what we were talking about earlier, where they say, all right, we're all very busy. Let's be efficient and divvy this up. That's our group planning. That's how that works. So it can be really helpful if you are putting structures in place like group planning or new PLCs that you have those led or facilitated at least at first until they get used to these by a coach, by an administrator, by a veteran teacher, someone who really understands what your expectations are and is able to help the teachers implement that because these new teachers are willing and they're excited. They just lack the knowledge. And so there, again, there's that gap there. Yes. And, and, you know, it's really, it's knowing who's going to be responsible for what something that I know we've talked through with some of our coaches is just how do you coach teachers and who's responsible for what and who who is my responsibility and what do I do about the social studies teachers who don't want to be involved? And, you know, we've had some of those conversations. And then also things like uh, if you have long-term subs that are teaching classes, bring them in, welcome them into the PLCs or into the group planning. So they're part of the group because that's another way to generate that buy-in, that ownership of the instruction, really including them as part of the faculty and welcoming them them into that culture of the data-informed instruction is going to be really crucial 
to making sure that students in their classes are on the same page and receiving those same or similar services. We'll shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about coaches throughout this. We've kind of woven uh, the coach discussion in, but there are some, there are some aspects of instructional coaches that are really kind of unique to the coaching role as opposed to the teaching role. And so the first one is this dynamic that we're seeing, and this is driven by a lot of the teacher shortage and substitute shortages, is that cycle of coaches covering classes and then trying to catch people up because they don't have that time to really fulfill the instructional coaching role. They're serving as a substitute teacher. Right. We've had a lot of instructional coaches over the last three years burn out because of this, because they'll be like, well, I thought I was going to be coaching and now I'm just covering classes and trying to coach and having more responsibilities about these data chats. I just want to move back into the classroom. It's very, very difficult to convince somebody you're going to teach four classes and then you're responsible for those grades. And then you're responsible for going in and coaching these teachers, plus doing the PLC work, understanding what responsibilities you are giving them. Because if you're constantly deferring to the coaches, you might not realize the amount that they are doing. Oh, they're going to cover this class and then they're responsible for the data chats. And then they have to coach and do a learning cycle. And so it can be very difficult for coaches. They don't want to necessarily stay until nine or 10 o'clock at night at the school or work nine o'clock at night. They could go back to a classroom and have a different schedule. And unfortunately, what we've seen in many schools with many coaches is they're getting burnt out because of the new teachers. That's just, there's a lot, that's a lot more work on the coach because they feel that responsibility for training those teachers and working with them. They may be the one then pulling the assessment data, really having to work closely with the teachers to interpret it and turn that assessment data into instruction when if they were working with a team of veteran teachers, the lift would be much lighter. So in some cases, the coach is the one who's actually owning that benchmark data and is responsible for pulling it, for working with the teachers, for showing them how to use it while they're also covering classes. So they can get really overwhelmed. But then the other thing that we've seen that is equally concerning is we have seen administrators with expectations, but the administrator is unwilling to be the one to enforce it and leaves it to the coach to figure out why the teachers aren't there or to go talk to them when they're not showing up. And that also becomes a lot of pressure on on the coach for having to really serve in this administrative role. So now you've got them being a coach, being a substitute teacher, being an administrator. It can just be overwhelming. So let's talk about some of our recommendations. One of the recommendations that I would give is the administrator spending time talking through with the coaches. What do you even think this role is? So there's clear understanding. This is what I expect. This is what I want to see. If you expect them to spend time talking through their plans with the PLCs, then that needs to be something that is told to the coaches. If they are covering classes, making sure that there is some sort of balance to be able to do the responsibilities given to them without suffering this burnout. And this, the one aspect of this is that we recommend is talking about PLCs and sharing the data. But at the same time, because they are at the same level as the teacher, they also need to know how to build relationships with teachers. It, 
that shouldn't be the expectation that they come in on the first day of school and throw down the teacher's data and say, you have these kids. The teachers aren't going to trust them in that situation. So working with the coaches and this new dynamic so that they have an understanding of the culture of the school you want to create, what's your plan, how much time, how to start the conversation with teachers, and how to move forward with that. That is going to be key. If it's not planned out and it's not fully disclosed. That's where a lot of the frustration lies. One of the things that we really think about as educators when we think about our students is that social emotional component and less attention is given to that when we think about our faculty, our teachers and our coaches. And that's really critical. Having those coaches have that time and those supports in place to build those relationships so that they don't end up walking in, doing walkthroughs and feeling more like an administrator because that's a very different relationship roles, set of responsibilities, and really to effectively use your coach. So we're going to stop here today. That's part one of our talk about COVID and how the pandemic has impacted data use at schools and districts. If anything that we talked about really resonated with you and you would like to dig into it a little bit farther with us, then please reach out to us on our website. There's a link. You can set up a consult and we'll be very happy to talk through this with you and see how we might be able to plug in and assist you on your campus as you're really working through some of the effects of the pandemic and as you're wanting a thought partner who has not only been in your shoes, but also who really understands how data use looks a little bit different in this new world. Thanks so much for listening today. Thank you for joining us today. 